Hey guys, let me tell you about a great way to support the show and get yourself some fantastic products. Bamboo Beard Company has some amazing new fall scents that I think you're going to love. Now I'm recording this in late August, and it's basically their Halloween season. Just today they have released a new scent line called the Strong Man. This one has a scent profile of delicious pears, cinnamon spice, balsam, and rich leather. It's the perfect scent for fall. And as always, it's available in a beard oil, butter, balm, even a beard wash, a beard conditioner, and a deodorant. And maybe you're more of a Halloween guy like myself. Well, check out the Carney. This one has a scent profile of warm kettle corn, salted caramel, and sweet pipe tobacco. It really is one of my favorites to wear this time of the year, and I'm sure you're going to love it. Just head over to fablebeardco.com and be sure to use checkout code SEAN15. This will get you 15% off each and every single order. Remember, SEAN15, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15, and get that awesome 15% discount for all of your Fable Beard Care products. Okay, let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 34, World War II in China, Part 3. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back to the show. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but I really needed the break. Now, hopefully we can get back to having episodes for at least once a month going forward. But I make no promises, because it is already a crazy school year. But anyways, the last time we delved deep into what was going on in China in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Now, if you remember, we saw the continuing fight between the nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the communists, led by Mao Zedong, meant they were unable to present a united front against the much more disciplined and well-equipped Japanese Imperial Army. However, as the war wore on, the nationalists began to combine guerrilla tactics with the more traditional Western style, and they were successful in their attempt to bog the Japanese down into a war of attrition, fighting against an ugly insurgency. And just like the Americans in Vietnam and the Russians in Afghanistan, this meant they had a very difficult time and they were forced to engage in a vicious counterinsurgency fight. Now this fight, along with the one being waged by the communists against the Kuomintang, the nationalists, meant that by 1943, the communists were in control of most areas north of the Yellow River. The long-term implications of this meant that, once the Sino-Japanese War was over, the communists would have the upper hand. However, that's a tale for another time. It's time now for our Song of the Week, and this week I give to you the Evening Primrose by Yi Lai Xiang. We'll see you in just a moment.
Okay, now I was getting ready to write this episode. I realized that we had left off one important part of what was happening. The government of Wang Xingwei in Nanjing. Now, if you remember, this was the collaborationist government um, that allied itself with, the Jap- with Japan and Nazi Germany. Now, I know it's been a while since we mentioned him way back in episode 4.8. Just for your information, that episode was released in October of 2021. So, yeah, it's been a while. Wang had been a left-wing member of the nationalist government, and he had been close to Sun Yat-sen. Now, once Sun died, Wang vied with Chiang Kai-shek for leadership of the party, and lost that struggle, obviously. He did eventually reconcile with Chiang, but by 1937 he was out of the Kuomintang, and he had moved to the right politically. For the rest of his life, and by the way he died in 1944, he was associated with virulent anti-communism and fascism. Now, to this day, he is still a controversial figure in Chinese history, and his name is synonymous with treason. Indeed, one could say that he is the Chinese version of Benedict Arnold. Now, be that as it may, his government in Nanjing paid tribute to Sun Yat-sen for its ideology, and amongst its most active programs was something called the New Citizen Movement. This was basically just an adoption of Chang's New Life campaign, Um, It also invested heavily in propaganda, such as posters and news articles, as well as the formation of youth groups, complete with uniforms. Now, one thing that I did not know, well, actually, there's a lot that I did not know about this aspect of Chinese history, was a program the collaborative government created with the support of their Japanese masters, which was called Village Clearance. Now, this was the brainchild of Wang uh, government's, uh, the Wang government's security chief, Li Shiquin. Um, Its goal was to root out all opposition from either nationalists or communists in the countryside. And it had its successes. The Wang government and its allies used a combination of terror and intimidation combined with relief and rehabilitation. Now, in some ways, this reminded me of the tactics used by the Americans in Vietnam, um, especially in the early 1960s, but I digress. One other tactic used was the creation of cooperative stores, which sold goods to the people in occupied or collaborationist areas at below market prices. For people who were suffering, and let's face it, the average people are always the ones who suffer in war, this relief was welcome. Now, having said that, as historian Raina Mitter notes in her excellent work, Forgotten Ally, this was simply, quote, the benevolent base of a far more violent strategy against resistance, end quote. To say the collaborationist government was benevolent would be a mistake. All three sides, the nationalists, the communists, and the collaborationists, were ruthless in their quest for power and control. Now, by the spring of 1941, Chiang received a report which indicated the Nazis were planning to invade the Soviet Union that summer. The interesting part, and it's really just interesting and not vital to our narrative, is that Chiang wanted to warn Stalin of what was coming while not giving away the game to the Nazis. And so he waited until June, at which point he called in Zhou Enlai and told him what he had learned. He knew that telling Zhou was almost as good as telling Stalin himself. He wanted to see the Nazis invade the Soviet Union, especially since by this point, they were the main support or source, I should say, of supplies for the communists, whom he saw as his most important enemy. If the Japanese invaded the Russian Far East, then that would be even better. However, what he did not want to see was the Soviets knocked out completely. So Chang held a meeting with his staff in which he discussed his beliefs for what was coming. While the nationalist leader gets a lot of guff from his critics, his analysis is pretty darn good. 
For example, he noted that the non-aggression treaty between Japan and the Soviets, which had just been signed, was certainly good for the Russians, since it ensured, at least for now, they'd not have to fight a two-front war. It also meant the Japanese had the ability to move troops from the border with the Soviet Union to other areas, but that would not be enough to change the course of the war, at least not for the time being. It also meant the Germans would be wondering just how reliable their Japanese allies were. Further, Chang thought that within the next six months, and this was in April of 1941, the situation in the Pacific would change. The Japanese would now march south and run into the Americans and British. This meant, and again it's his opinion, that the first stage of failure for Japan as a world power was approaching. And according to his diary, Chang passed on his information about the upcoming invasion of Russia by the Germans to the Americans. Now, I don't know about you, but Chang, at least in this instance, was spot on and one heck of an, had one heck of an analysis of the situation. Speaking of Chang and his notifying people of what he knew, the Generalissimo was in touch with U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, as well as Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox and Army Secretary Henry Stimson. And Chang had informants everywhere. He learned that the Americans were thinking of softening their sanctions against the Japanese as a way to delay the war that was coming up. Now, if you remember, there were meetings set for early December between the two sides, and Chang warned his American friends, including Secretary of War Stimson, that a loosening of the sanctions against Japan would effectively ensure the collapse of Chinese resistance. Chang was also in contact with Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, who agreed with his Chinese counterpart. And he, in turn, encouraged Roosevelt to stand firm. Thus, in the end, the watered-down proposal was never given to the Japanese, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, as for the Americans, Pearl Harbor arrived. It was 0100 on December 8th when Chang was awoken and told that news of the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. The leader of the Kuomintang told his aide to call a meeting of the KMT Central Standing Committee, and then he dictated a letter to FDR, which was translated by his wife, Sung Mai Ling. As the next few months unfolded, Chang could take pride in the fact that the Americans and the British lost every battle against the Japanese. This would hopefully remind them of just how valiantly the poorly equipped Chinese soldiers had fought over the last four years. After all, the Americans and the British had better equipment and better training, or so one would think. Now remember, the disagreements between the Americans and British about the areas of command, arguments which even took place between elements of the uh, actual U.S. military, the same thing took place between the Allies. Chang, determined to do his part now that he was an ally of both, offered to send what remained of his German-trained divisions, 80,000 troops who were his best, to Rangoon in British Burma. He was also willing to put them under British command and send what remained of his heavy motorized artillery. Now, he understood the importance of the Burma Road in keeping China supplied, and was thus even willing to commit the Flying Tigers, American pilots flying American P-40s that were paid for in cash by the Chinese government, to the defense of that road. Now, at that time, they numbered only about 75 planes, and they were all the nationalists had as far as attack aircraft go. And yet, he was determined to help as much as possible. However, strangely, within a few months, there were several Americans in the region who condemned Chang, saying he was trying to do as little as possible. Now, I suspect this was a bit of racism and a bit of, shall we say, the old cover-your-ass trick. 
the Americans and their British cousins were getting trounced all over the Pacific. So rather than admit they were losing big time, some tried to explain that if only Chang were willing to do more, the situation would be different. Now this infighting really stinks, doesn't it? But you know what doesn't? Our Patreon. I know it's an awful transition, but if you'd like to support the show, maybe give us the type of support Chang was offering the Americans, oh, sorry, I couldn't resist, then head over to patreon.com forward slash American History. For $10 a month, you'll have access to a ton of history goodness, including our current two bonus shows, Colonial America and Quagmire, the history of American involvement in the Middle East. You also get access to our completed show, 1983, the year the world almost ended, and a bunch of other bonus episodes that are not available anywhere else. So head on over there and get to listening. All right, enough of that. Let's get back to the show. Now, as you are aware, there were quite a few interesting characters in World War II. Admiral William Bull Halsey, General Douglas MacArthur, um, General Chesty Puller, General Patton, many others. But you might not be aware of is someone named General Joe Vinegar Stillwell. He was a West Point graduate, class of 1904, and by early 1942, he was promoted to Lieutenant General. Now, Stillwell was a close friend, uh, was close friends with Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall, and he was recommended for the job of, quote, China Theater Chief of Staff, end quote. Now, why Stillwell, you might ask? Well, first, besides the, uh, his connections, which were quite obvious, he was considered the foremost specialist on China in the American military. He spoke the language and had served in China in the 1920s and 30s. Now, he was tough and he was opinionated. Um, in some ways, a lot like Chang himself. His no-nonsense demeanor might have been refreshing to Western journalists, but he had the habit of oversimplifying the complex. And if there was anything complex, it was personalities like Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Furthermore, while he was personally conservative, he was heavily influenced by left-leaning Mao apologists like Edgar Snow. Mao and his supporters, in Stilwell's opinion, merely desired land reform, Communism was incompatible with Chinese nature, and as a result, a genuine Marxist-Leninist party could not exist in China. Talk about being off the mark. Interestingly, Chang welcomed the appointment of Stilwell, but the warm feelings were not shared by the American officer. Instead, he thought Chang was cruel and unthinking, a dictator who had one goal, to hold on to power. Now, the problem with Stilwell, and this is pointed out by historian Jay Taylor in his book on Chiang Kai-shek, Life was, quote, categorical nuances non-existent, end quote. Thus, he believed Chang had no values, quote, no skills in government or generalship, no real interest in the modernization and welfare of China except to the extent that it increased his power, no human qualities worth noting such as patriotism, bravery, loyalty, or a sense of duty and honor, and no valid intellectual or cultural interests, end quote. Basically, I think we can trace the poor attitude amongst American leadership in the years during and then after the war as having grown out of Stilwell's beliefs. Furthermore, and I think this is key to all of this, while Chang and the KMT were busy fighting the Japanese and the communists, the CCP under Mao, they were also busy. Now, I've mentioned this, but I want to be sure that you understand it. While China faced its greatest ever danger, Mao spent two years building a party that was tightly disciplined and could ensure its armed forces and party apparatus, operating across the vast distances of the nation, could implement a coordinated strategy. 
He combined the already seen ruthless purges of all opposition in the party, along with an indoctrination campaign. Now, when military men like Marshall or Stilwell compared the two, it likely appealed to them that Mao and his folks were extremely well organized. Never mind, they were only allowed to see what Mao wanted them to see. Compare that to the nationalists, who appeared disorganized and corrupt, and probably were to some extent. So what is my evidence for this? George C. Marshall, a man who we noted earlier was friends with Stilwell, also had a poor opinion of the Generalissimo. Historians uh, Jung Chang and John Halliday note that Mao was able to exploit the hesitancy many in the American leadership felt towards Chang. Even the great General Marshall was susceptible to what some term, quote, red deception, end quote. When Marshall went to China in late 1945, Mao and the CCP were able to capitalize on his reticence towards Chang by telling the Americans that the CCP and the United States had lots of things in common. It wanted a democracy based on the American model, or so they said. Now, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. They even went so far as to tell Marshall that, rumors to the contrary, Mao, um, were he to travel abroad, preferred to visit the United States and was not interested in going to Russia. Now, this, of course, made its way back to Truman, and years later he was still insisting that the nationalists were far less cooperative than the Chinese Communist Party. But back to Stilwell. Was he right? Was Chang sitting around on his duff and simply interested in improving his own position and wealth at the expense of the Chinese people and the nation? I don't believe so. In 1937, it was clear that even while in the midst of the Great Depression and while attempting to modernize the nation and deal with internal wars, Chang was also preparing for war with Japan. He devoted many resources and much energy to modernizing both the army and the military-industrial complex using German weapons and training. It was all paid for with Chinese money. All of this is ignored, or it was ignored by Stilwell. Instead, he and others like him promoted the, quote, cash or check, end quote, put down, amongst other criticisms, some of which might have been valid, but many of the ones that I've just mentioned were not. Now, one aspect of the war in China that had escaped my attention, and probably yours as well, was the status of foreign nationals in the occupied areas of China. While Japan was fighting against China, there were lots of foreigners there, traders, missionaries, educators. What happened to them once Japan was at war with the Allies? While the war was simply a regional conflict and their nations were nominally neutral, these people were protected. However, they were suddenly behind enemy lines. The day after the war was declared, the Japanese, using military police, began rounding up foreigners. Whatever protection they had a day earlier was now gone. Again, referring to um, historian Raina Mitter's notes, um, the American presence in China during the 19th and early 20th century was one that, while it brought advantage to the Chinese, at the end of the day, it was rooted in imperialism. Yes, doctors, missionaries, and teachers went by the thousands. But Americans were prominent also in the opium trade. The president himself, Franklin Roosevelt, was the grandson of Warren Delano Jr., his maternal grandfather, a man who amassed a fortune smuggling opium into China illegally. Furthermore, Americans enjoyed legal immunity in China, along with other Europeans. Now, speaking of other Europeans, one such person was an 11-year-old British boy, Jim Ballard. Now, he was in Shanghai, and he sent, was sent, I should say, to a holding camp where he spent the rest of the war. 
about 40 years later, he published a novel about his experiences titled Empire of the Sun. Besides Jim Ballard, we know the story of others. Dr. Vela V. Brown and her American colleagues ended up trapped in the city of Shantou in southern China. Like many others, they were rounded up and they spent several months worrying about what would happen to them. Luckily, they were treated well and in April 1942 became part of a major exchange between the United States and Japan. Now, prominent figures like the ambassador to Japan were exchanged along with regular folks like Brown. Now, in the previous episode, I mentioned General Stilwell, and we just mentioned him right now, uh, but he was not the only one who had a low opinion of Chiang Kai-shek. The British, as well as, uh, were very wary of the Generalissimo, and the feeling was mutual. Chiang, for his part, if you remember, had been virulently anti-imperialist and remained so. He was also a Chinese patriot, and publicly he said all of the right things. In his diary, however, one sees his lack of confidence in his new friends. Apparently, his ambassador to the United States reported a conversation with FDR in which the president urged the Chinese to show sympathy with their new allies, but not celebrate the fact they were now in the war too publicly. Chang wrote this show, quote, the, Amer the contempt that the Americans and British hold for us. Even Roosevelt can't get out of these old attitudes. Such a pity, end quote. Now, having said that, while Chang was disheartened by FDR, it was the British who received the brunt of his criticism. He believed China's problems did not just stem from the Japanese, but they came from the British. He was aware of the history of British involvement in China, a record of imperialism that stretched back over 100 years at that point. How did Chang feel about the British? Quote, I despise them, but I respect them, end quote. Thus, the nationalist Chinese leader had a list of demands for the British, one which led the British military attaché in Chongqing to remark that the Chinese had now, quote, reached a pitch of arrogance and conceit that is unbelievable, end quote. These demands included the return of Kowloon and Hong Kong, control over Tibet, and the return of Outer Mongolia, which were, at that point, controlled by the Soviets. He also wanted Manchuria to be recognized as Chinese territory. In many ways, his desire to see Chinese territorial integrity restored was similar to that which was expressed by Mao. Indeed, when Mao came to power, the People's Republic of China did most, if not all of this, including taking over Tibet. Another problem, and I think this is at the root of this, is the fact that most Americans, and even the British, wanted China to turn into Southern California overnight. What I mean by that is this. China had not had a history of Western-style democracy. The line of emperors was gone for, what, 30 years at this point? There might have been imperial dynasties for over 2,000 years. You can't reverse that history overnight. They either were ignorant of the difficult work Chang had been doing to modernize his country, or they were simply ignoring it. Now, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but he was trying to modernize the country while fighting a civil war against a ruthless enemy in Mao and the Communist Party, as well as fight off an invasion by the Japanese. Chinese democracy, if that's what he was truly trying to establish, might not look like a Western system, at least not immediately. Furthermore, who cares? Do we really think they cared about this? South Korea did not hold truly democratic elections until the 1990s. We were allies with a non-democratic Philippines, Chile, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and many others in the Cold War. Heck, the CIA ended Iranian democracy in the 1950s when they overthrew the elected government and installed the Shah. Don't believe me about this? Perhaps the words of the American ambassador, Clarence Gauss, in 1942 when he said, quote, the party, Kuomintang, 
has for years given lip service to reform and improvement, but little of tangible character has been accomplished, end quote. Huh? Did he think that China would go in 1927 from a revolution to American-style two-party democracy or a multi-party democracy with peaceful transitions of power while at the same time dealing with the Communist Party and the Japanese invasions all overnight? These people were kidding themselves that they thought Mao was interested in peaceful transitions and power sharing. Now again, historian Raina Mitter brings up a great point. The Americans and British viewed the Chinese situation through one lens, while the Chinese government of Chiang saw it differently. The Chinese, especially the KMT, saw themselves as the most consistent enemy of fascist aggression. They'd been in the fight now for over a decade. They had fought on, even when it appeared hopeless, and they had few, if any, friends willing to assist. Now they demanded to be treated as an equal partner. Their American and British friends, however, saw a nation that was on its knees and themselves as saviors. Sadly, I think, and this is just my opinion, that this is typical of Western foreign policy. We fail to acknowledge the contribution of the other side. We fail to listen and take advice, and it often gets us into trouble. I'm thinking of Vietnam right now especially, but that's a tale that we will tell sometime in the future. But think of it like this. How did the Americans and British treat Stalin and the Soviets? As pretty much an equal power. They shared on key issues intelligence and made it obvious that Russia was strategically an important partner. China, on the other hand, they often treated like a second-class partner, putting little effort into the relationship. Now, this obviously rubbed the Chinese, uh, the Chinese and Chang the wrong way, and rightfully so. He argued that if China collapsed, it would free up at least 600,000 members of the Imperial Japanese Army who could be used elsewhere in the Pacific. When Chang requested a loan, a loan, mind you, not a gift, of $500 million, officials feared some would be skimmed off the top. However, compare this to the Lend-Lease. The Chinese only received 1.5% of the total. How were they supposed to stay in the fight without help? Oh, and that total? It dropped to half a percent in 1943 and 1944. And then, in 1945, it rose, oh my gosh, to a staggering 4%. <laughs> yes, that's sarcasm. Compare this to what the United States is giving, say, Ukraine today. I know, the amounts are different, and we've had serious deterioration in the purchasing power of the dollar over the last 70 years or so, but I think the point remains. The United States needed China, and particularly the nationalists, to remain a viable concern. And, and yet they seem to think, or they seem not to see it. To make matters worse, there was a set of discussions which started off in Washington and then moved to Chongqing, involving China, the British, the Americans, and the Netherlands. This was to set up the America, British, Dutch, and Australia, a.k.a. ABDA Command. We mentioned that earlier in Season 4, but I'm not sure we mentioned the Chinese at that point. These talks ended in acrimony when the nationalists were angered by General Archibald Wavell, Commander-in-Chief, India, when he refused the nationalist aid when it came to Burma. He was worried they'd simply overwhelm the already burdened infrastructure. Cheng's pride, as you can imagine, was wounded by this attitude. He ended up telling the British they shouldn't see the Chinese like other native uh, armies from their empire. Only good, quote, for railroad protection duties and digging trenches, end quote. There was no doubt the British did look down upon the military abilities of Chinese soldiers, and they did little to hide that disdain. Now, eventually, the Allies created a separate theater for China and placed all Allied forces there under the command of Chiang. But this did little to assuage his anger. He even told an American diplomat that the Americans and British viewed the Chinese as a partner only in name. 
Historian Hans van de Ven brings up a good point about all of this in his book, China at War, Triumph and Tragedy in the Emergence of the New China. He notes that Stilwell, um, and this likely can be applied to not only other experts on China, but to the entire Anglo-American leadership, held the typical Orientalist disdain for all things Chinese. Okay, so that's all for now, but I, and I think this is a lot to digest. And when I see you next time, we'll start to look at the Burma campaign since we just mentioned it. Until then, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4, Episode 34 of the American History Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.